Hello, and welcome to the Queen's Observatory Fast Radio Bursts. I am Connor Stone, here with my co-host, Nikhil Aurora. It is our mission to bring exciting space news hot off the telescope and into your ears. One way or another, the Queen's Observatory has continued its practice of sharing the wonders of the universe since 1857. Thank you for joining us in this long-running tradition. Here at Fast Radio Bursts, we will answer your questions, interview astronomers, and dive deep into breaking research. From low Earth orbit to the clouds of Venus, from Betelgeuse to colliding black holes, it's a big universe to talk about, so let's get started. Hello again, Connor Stone here with our guest, Ananthan Karuna Karen. Can you say hi, Ananthan? Hi, everyone. Hi, Ananthan. So, uh, Ananthan is going to be talking with us today about ultra-diffuse galaxies. And as, as a bit of background about Ananthan, he got his bachelor's degree in physics at McMaster University and then joined us at Queen's for his master's degree and is now in the sort of final throes of, his P- of getting his PhD here at Queen's University. While here, he's done... Uh, quite a bit of interesting work. He's been an avid user of the Green Bank Telescope, banking hundreds of hours of time of observing through that very special telescope, which we'll talk about later. He's been featured in Nature Astronomy Highlights. He's the Graduate Physics Society Vice President. He's been a longtime observatory volunteer and even one of our observatory open house speakers and is a really big supporter of the Science Rendezvous event that we have here in Kingston every year. So he's a big fan of science outreach, and we're really happy to have him here today. Thanks so much for having me, Connor. It's really great what you guys are doing here with Fast Radio Bruce. Thanks for joining us, Nathan. We're, we're really happy to have you on here to talk about this uh, really cool topic of these ultra-diffuse galaxies. And from what I understand, these ultra-diffuse galaxies are a category of low-surface brightness galaxies and maybe, maybe we should uh, sort of start by explaining what surface brightness is and why astronomers use it um, to talk about uh, the category of these galaxies. So could, yeah. you, could you explain to us what the surface brightness is? Yeah. So uh, fundamentally, surface brightness is a unit of apparent brightness or apparent luminosity. Uh, so how bright something looks on the sky per unit area on the sky. So it's the angular area or the the amount of luminosity um, within an angular area on the sky. Um, And we use this uh, to sort of classify different types of objects because it lets us sort of see the different types of objects in different uh, surface brightness regimes. So typically you would expect to see Um, very massive galaxies like the Milky Way um, as higher surface brightness um, within uh, a certain region, but then extends to lower and lower surface brightnesses as you go to the very extents. So the density of light that comes from the edges of uh, more massive galaxies um, is is lower. And then we have this sort of regime where um, these low surface brightness galaxies, they are just diffuse and very low in their density. So from our theory, we expect that these very low density, low mass objects should outnumber the brightest objects in the sky. 
there should be many more, <coughs> excuse me, there should be many more low mass, uh, low surface brightness objects in the sky compared to uh, higher mass, high surface brightness objects. All right. So it seems like surface brightness, maybe you could think of it as uh, the actual number that ends up in your pixel for your camera. Um, is, that, mm -hmm. is that right? That's, yeah, that sounds about right. And the advantage of it is that if the galaxy is further away, more of it fits into that same pixel, and so it stays roughly the same brightness. Yeah, so the surface brightness doesn't have a dependence on the distance of the object itself. All right. And so now that we have an idea of what the surface brightness is, what would be, what characterizes a low surface brightness galaxy? So traditionally, low surface brightness galaxies uh, have been thought to, you know, be hidden by the, the night sky itself. So if it's invisible to the night sky, so astronomers like to use this fancy magnitude system, and it's this weird sort of inverse logarithmic system, but essentially it's, uh, if it's, it's two and a half times dimmer than the night sky, I believe, then it's considered a low surface brightness object. So the ambient night sky has its own surface brightness. And if it's lower than that by a factor of two and a half or so, then it's considered to be a low surface brightness object. And more so with modern surveys, we're, we're able to detect more and more objects because of you know, improvements to uh, our instrumentations so or the telescopes that we use and you know, our analysis methods. So the algorithms that we use, and I mean, with machine learning in the place that it is now, um, we're able to pick out lower and lower surface brightness objects, both with instrumentation, but also with, uh, you know, an analysis approach. Right. So when you upgrade the analysis, sometimes you might discover one of these in an old data set that no one saw it before, right? Exactly. So once we've found a low surface brightness galaxy, what would characterize it as an ultra diffuse galaxy? So this is, I think, a bit of a, uh, it's, it's becoming more and more contentious, is what I'll say. Um, I think some people are classifying ultra-diffuse galaxies solely based on their angular sizes. So um, the term, or the, the moniker ultra-diffuse comes from the fact that these are already low surface brightness objects, but you're extending it even further so they've added the moniker ultra diffuse to it. So it's become even more diffuse than it already is. So it's an extended low surface brightness object. And in order to actually know if these are physically extended, we need distance measurements. So an apparent size on the sky is just apparent. We use an angular estimate of its size instead of a physical one. So, so it could be either close to us and small or far away and big. That's exactly right. And it could have the same, it could have the same surface brightness. I see. So those are the ultra diffuse galaxies or UDGs as we'll probably be calling them through the rest of the podcast. And I understand that you've spent quite a bit of time on the uh, Green Bank Telescope observing these ultra diffuse galaxies. Can you tell us a little bit about the Green Bank Telescope and uh, how it works. Right. Okay. So this is a, this is a pretty loaded question. So I'll start from, I, I think the basics. The Green Bank Telescope is 
in Green Bank, West Virginia. It's located in this massive radio quiet zone. Um, it's afraid of the exact square footage, but it's uh, on the order of like 13,000 uh, or something ludicrous. It's just this large radio quiet zone in rural West Virginia. Um, and the reason for that is the Green Bank Telescope is a radio telescope. So it observes at radio wavelengths. Um, and the specific wavelength that I look at is the neutral hydrogen line or the H1 line. And this is a, a line that's emitted by neutral hydrogen when it goes through this um, quantum spin flip. Uh, but the, the point is that it emits at a wavelength uh, of 21 centimeters and it's in the radio. And the Green Bank Telescope is really well suited for this because it has this massive 100 meter dish that has no obscuring secondary mirror. So it has this interesting offset design that makes it one of the most sensitive radio telescopes in the world. And it makes it the largest fully steerable telescope in the world. There is no other telescope that is as big and movable at the same time. So it's really this combination of uh, maneuverability and sensitivity that makes the Green Bank Telescope so great. All right, and uh, so this this uh, big radio telescope that we can point anywhere in the sky, at least. Virtually anywhere, yeah. yeah virtually anywhere. And you mentioned that you were looking at um, neutral hydrogen or H1. And uh, what, what, does, what does H1 tell us about these galaxies that you're, these ultra diffuse galaxies that you're pointing at? So I think fundamentally, if we, I guess, stay, take a step back, galaxies are, have different components to them. Um, so they have this stellar component or the stars that are in them. Um, they have dust and gas that are, you know, that are used to sort of either form or are the byproducts of these stars forming. And H1 is a gas, so it's the neutral hydrogen gas form. And then that sort of cools and condenses to form molecular hydrogen, hydrogen which eventually forms stars. So in a way, it's the, the first step towards forming stars. And it tells us about the ability of a galaxy to form more stars. And it also tells us about the last component of galaxies, which is their dark matter component. So galaxies all reside, or we believe that they all reside in these massive dark matter halos. And the H1 gas can actually probe much more of the dark matter halo because it's much more extended in its, in its uh, distribution than the stellar component. So the stars that we see are usually this small central portion within this massive dark matter halo that a galaxy resides in. And the H1 component usually extends at least three times further than that. So what we can do with H1 for ultra diffuse galaxies is sort of use this information both with the potential for them to form stars. So looking at their, the ratio between how much gas they have and how much stars, how many stars they have, so their stellar content. Um, but also we can look at how they probe the dark matter halo itself. So we can look at how the gas is moving within this halo, so the rotation 
of this gas and infer properties about the dark matter halo itself because we believe that these two are coupled together. Right. So kind of just like the solar system, all the stars and gas in the galaxy roughly orbit around the center. And you can, you can just use the laws of physics to recover how much matter there must be in there, right? That's exactly right. And the H1 seems to be the best way to do that if it extends so much further out compared to the stars. So um, now that we've sort of gone, sort of rapid fire gone through a bunch of background information, we've figured out that these low surface brightness galaxies are uh, quite faint. Ultra diffuse galaxies are big one, big faint galaxies on the sky. And we've got our um, Green Bank Telescope telling us about neutral hydrogen. Putting this together, sort of, what, what are the steps that one takes to find a UDG? Yeah, so this is, this is a really great question. And I think it's really timely um, because we just, uh, well, at the time of recording this, uh, we just had our annual mini collaboration meeting. So with all the, uh, the smudges people, that. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll get into smudges. We'll get, yeah, yeah, we'll get into that. Um, but to find these objects, the simplest thing that someone can do is go through an all-sky survey data set. So say the Sloan Digital Sky Survey is this great um, wide-field sky survey um, that's done in the optical wavelength regime. And you can look for very faint, very extended objects. All right. Um, so these, these must be very challenging to find if people are still using their eyes um, quite often. I should say that that's not the, the main way that people are doing it now. I think that's I the see. easiest way that people are doing it. Um, there are several people, several teams, I should say, um, that are trying to fine tune existing algorithms or make new algorithms, including ones that uh, make use of machine learning to identify these objects and classify them as well uh, as extended ultra uh, extended low surface brightness or UDGs, um, and they range from being very computationally expensive. So training a machine learning algorithm um, is very difficult to do, especially when you have uh, a relatively small sample, um, but some of the more traditional methods of um, the steps that people take by eye, you can automate that into an algorithm. So you can say, I want you to, I want you to block out all these bright objects. And then I want you to look for this many pixels that are brighter than this limit. So if it finds this sort of signal to noise range of consecutive pixels, it'll say, I think that there's an object here. And that's sort of the most fundamental algorithm that people use um, to automate these things. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of butchering the explanation of it, but I think, I think to get the point across, that's the, the best way to, to go about things as your first step. Right. And because these are such faint things, I imagine you get a lot of uh, noise or uh, junk that gets turned up as well. Yeah. Because um, some, sometimes like a star will leak light into nearby pixels and that's a huge issue absolutely and yeah. uh i will say that uh i've worked with some of our collaborators at the university of arizona i know we're gonna get to this 
but I just thought this would be an interesting sort of point. Uh, I've had to classify by eye several of these objects to sort of help train these algorithms. Um, and you just mentioned stars leaking, and that is actually such a huge issue to sort of teach an algorithm that, you know, this isn't what we want to see. Yeah, because it, it doesn't really know what an ultra-diffuse galaxy is supposed to look like. It's just yeah. trying to do its best to do what you told it to do. <laughs> exactly. Um, so now, is there is there anywhere on the sky that's maybe better to look than other places? Is is there are there sort of hot spots for these UDGs? So there there are hot spots, um, and those are typically around clusters of galaxies. So these are hundreds to thousands of galaxies that are associated with each other um, gravitationally. So they're gravitationally bound with each other is what I should say. Um, but you know we find this, this clustering and we can sort of infer that maybe there's an evolutionary thing as well. Um, but now that some teams have sort of probed regions outside of these you know, hotspots, um, people have found that the, the density of these objects should actually be equal in clusters and in isolation. So once we actually get to deploy these algorithms on super wide field all sky surveys, we should be able to find the same number of UDGs or UDG candidates um, in clusters and in isolation. All right, that's very interesting. And I'm sure we'll come back to that when we talk about um, sort of theories of how UDGs form. But for now, I, th I think we've covered the main basics that people need to know to sort of get a sense of what these UDGs are and how we're looking for them. So we'll go to our first break. And when we come back, we will talk about the smudges survey in detail. Great. All right, we'll be back soon. Hello, Nick here. Don't worry, I haven't gone anywhere and I'll be back in the next episode. I'm just stopping by to let you know that the Queen's Observatory is always here to answer your space questions. You can find us on Facebook at Queen's Observatory, all one word, or on Twitter at QU Observatory. If you'd like to see the talks from one of our past open houses, you can check out our YouTube page by searching for Queen's Observatory and looking for our logo. We're always happy to talk about the universe, and if you ask a really big question, we just might have to do a podcast about it. That's all from me. Let's get back to the amazing research. And welcome back. So now that we've covered the sort of background information that we need to know about what these ultra-diffuse galaxies are and how we find them on the sky, uh, we're, we're here to talk about the, the survey that you've been working on with your collaborators, the Smudges Survey. Could you tell us what Smudges is uh, and sort of what, what information you've got in this survey? Yeah, for sure. So Smudges stands for Systematically Measuring Ultra-Diffuse Galaxies. Uh, so it's aptly named Smudges because when you look at a smudge, or when you look at a UDG, sorry, uh, in an image, it actually looks like it's just a smudge on the sky. So the, the stars in this object are so dense or so low in density that 
they just look like someone smudged them uh, in the image. I have um, to say, you've done a much better job than most astronomers at putting together your acronym. It's it's quite a bit of butchering sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> so this is a good for one. sure. Yeah, we. I, I was really happy to see that this one made a lot of sense. <laughs> so what we're trying to do in the Smudges survey is, as it's named, we're systematically trying to take uh, data both from the optical side, um, so looking at the, the stellar content or the stars in these objects, but also um, from other wavelength approaches. So mine is from the radio regime. Um, there are some groups that are looking uh, at uh, all the UV emissions, so the star formation in these objects and the young stars that emit ultra ultraviolet uh, emission um, or light. Uh, so there are these sort of different approaches that people are taking within the smudges uh, collaboration. And what I'm specifically doing is using the H1 gas in these objects as a way to not only trace the their gas content, uh, but also to place constraints on how these objects form. Um, and most importantly, on getting distance measurements to these objects. So something that I probably should have explained a little bit better when we talked about the Green Bank Telescope and uh, H1 is that it's a spectral line. So it's susceptible uh, or it follows the rules of uh, Doppler shifting um, or red shifting as uh, we commonly refer to it as uh, in, in astronomy. And so this sort of idea is that you see a change in the frequency or the wavelength of an object as it moves uh, away from us, but you can think of it as, say, a car or an ambulance moving towards and away from you, and you see the, or you hear the change in the frequency of the, the siren that's coming from an ambulance. Um, and the same sort of principle applies to the H1 spectral line. So we see these objects uh, are moving away from us, and we take that information um, and the laws that we know about the Doppler shift, and we're able to estimate a distance to these objects. And this distance is really important because, as I alluded to, we really need a physical size associated with these objects. So we take the distance measurement from the H1 line, and we combine it with the angular size measurement on the sky, and that gives us a physical size. And and so now you, you can tell whether these galaxies are actually much closer to us than we thought or further away and categorize them as UDGs. Yeah, that's right. And can you get anything else with these H1 measurements? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, so what we also get from these objects or from these measurements of these objects is the amount of gas that they have. Um, and the third thing that you can get is the amount of rotational uh, or the, the rotation in these objects. So you can get a measure of the speed at which the gas in these galaxies is rotating. Um, and the first, so the, the amount of gas that they have is really important in terms of telling us the sort of uh, potential for star formation in these objects. Um, and then the rotation can tell us about the 
dynamical mass, which is very closely coupled to the uh, dark matter halo uh, or the dark matter mass. Um, so we can sort of infer two different uh, fundamental properties um, of these galaxies uh, from just this one measurement. So you get, I should summarize, and you get these three really key pieces of information from just one measurement. You get a distance, you get the potential for star formation, uh, and you get a measure of, uh, or a proxy for the dark matter content. All right, and so these, these sound like important pieces of, pieces of the puzzle for understanding these UDGs. Yeah. And maybe, maybe this would be a good time to get into one of the, one of the big questions, which is uh, sort of how does a UDG form? What sort of ideas do people have for where these objects come from? Yeah, this is a, a huge question and a huge field uh, that sort of really boomed. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's something that's, that's constantly changing. Um, but fundamentally, there are sort of two different camps that these uh, theories can be in. Uh, it's either that something has pulled these galaxies apart and made them very diffuse, uh, or they formed this way. So some sort of, um, either there's some sort of environmental dependence, uh, so there's an external sort of side of the theory, and then there's an internal side of the theory in which it sort of puffed itself up or blew itself up um, into this large sort of size. Um, so the former, so the external approach is more readily explained uh, when you look in the cluster environment, so these hundreds and thousands of galaxies that are gravitationally bound, when you find ultra-diffuse galaxies uh, in these systems, um, you can sort of very quickly say, you know, the most likely option is that they were pulled apart by gravity from these much more massive galaxies in the cluster. Um, but what we're sort of trying to probe is the population that's in isolation. How did these galaxies get their large physical extents? How did they become so extended? And what we can think of uh, are, there, there are again two more sort of subcategories within this. So we can look at either the stars in these objects and the way that stars uh, go through their evolution. Um, and in this sort of regime, uh, when a star goes through its lifespan, as some of us may know, they blow up, some of them blow up at the end and they go supernova. And the amount of energy that's held or uh, seen in these explosions um, can push out a whole bunch of material um, in its local region. And this sort of avalanches or snowballs um, and you get a series of uh, star formation episodes that blow, um, blow out material to larger and larger distances, uh, you know, but still gravitationally bound to the original galaxy, uh, but then result in the ultra-diffuse galaxies that we see in isolation today. And the second regime is that these galaxies were formed in these dark matter halos, so the largest component um, in galaxies uh, the 
the dark matter halos themselves have this intrinsic property to them so that they're um, rotating uh, or they, they have this larger angular momentum component to them that is directly coupled to the physical uh, stellar and gas components that then form these into really extended sort of objects. So those are the sort of three different ways that you can think about it. In a dense environment like a cluster, they're likely to be formed through interactions either uh, with a much more massive galaxy um, or with, uh, with other galaxies. And then in isolation, they can either be formed through um, the stars, you know, going through this, uh, their evolutionary process and pushing material out to larger and larger distances, or they're formed in these halos that, these dark matter halos that uh, almost force them to have their large extended sizes. Okay, so um, there's sort of three good ideas for where we can get really, uh, or ultra diffuse galaxies forming in our, in our universe. And I imagine one of the goals of the smudges survey is to sort of pick out which of these is the best explanation. And so I, I'm, I'm curious, of the galaxies that you find in the smudges survey, are, are they more in these cluster environments or are they more out on their own where they have to sort of get big themselves and do it, do it, do it on their own? So we find a bunch of them correlated with already known clusters, uh, but there's also a whole slew of them in seeming isolation. Um, and again, we don't know if they truly are ultra diffuse galaxies um, because we don't have distance measurements to them yet. So uh, what we call them is an ultra diffuse galaxy candidate or a UDG candidate um, because it could be one uh, or, or it couldn't be. So it's, it seems that uh, answering the question of how these UDGs form may end up being a little more complicated yeah. than it, just I mean, one it, answer. It's never easy. It's, it's never easy. Do you have, do you have a uh, sort of favorite one or, or do you think that wherever you find it, that sort of tells you what the explanation is? So I am really intrigued by this star formation uh, scenario um, because it's most readily measurable. Um, like it's, it's something that is present day. Um, if we look at it now, this is what we're seeing. Um, the, others, the other methods, you sort of have to infer a lot. You know, if it's in a cluster environment, it's, you say, okay, well, you know, it's likely been through, it's experienced some stuff, so it, it makes sense that it's this big. The dark matter halo part for um, the isolated ones is a lot harder to sort of probe because we don't see the dark matter. Um, we can't really infer what it was like when these galaxies first formed. So that's sort of the tricky part about that suggested scenario. I see. So it, it is really hard to tease these different ideas apart. Yeah. Um, so perhaps we could talk a little bit about uh, some, of the, some of the more nitty gritty to sort of understand what avenues people are taking to try and tease these apart. So I understand yeah. that um, in, in, your, in your latest paper, you realized that 
um, determining the inclination for these galaxies is really quite challenging. Uh, would you like to talk a little bit about that? Okay, so this is another loaded sort of question. Um, and the inclination of a galaxy is a really fundamental property um, that we need to constrain well because it influences our measurement of the rotation of these galaxies. So you can think of this as uh, sort of holding a rotating frisbee or looking at a rotating frisbee. Um, if you hold it edge on, you'll see that you can really tell which side is rotating towards you and which, which side is rotating away from you. Um, and then if you hold it face on, so if you're looking at the top of the frisbee um, and you still have it rotating, it's a lot harder to sort of figure out which side of it is rotating or you know the orientation of its rotation. Um, so that's analogous to the way that galaxies are rotating on the sky. And the inclination of these objects between edge on and face on um, is really important to sort of infer what the true rotation in these galaxies is. And what we're finding is that it's really, really hard to constrain the inclinations of these UDGs because they're so low surface brightness that um, it's, it's hard to place constraints on them. There's so little information for us to figure out, um, you know, are these galaxies really as inclined as we're measuring or are they less inclined? Um, and sort of uh, inferring what this means about their rotation and what their um, dark matter content is, uh, is also really important. I see. So um, you're, you're sort of getting hurt by how, how faint these things are and, it, and it's making it very difficult to sort of recover yeah. this sort of nuisance parameter, which is how tilted is the Frisbee on the sky. Yeah. Um, so, but as you said, it's, it's very important for understanding how fast these, these galaxies are rotating. And um, one, one of the ways that astrophysicists sort of understand how fast or, or use that information is to look at what's called the baryonic Tully-Fisher, correct? Yeah. And maybe, maybe since, since we're, we're in the weeds right now, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what the baryonic Tully-Fisher is and what it tells us about these UDGs. Okay, so the baryonic Tully-Fisher relation, um, so I'll, I'll break these up into, into two different bits. Uh, so the original Tully-Fisher relation uh, was uh, put together or founded uh, by Tully and Fisher uh, in, oh, it's decades ago now. I'm forgetting the actual decade. I'm assuming it's the 80s. Uh, yeah, but... I think it was either the late 70s or the 80s. It was a long time ago. Yeah. And it was this sort of fundamental relationship between the amount of rotation in galaxies and their brightness uh, their absolute brightness, so their luminosity, um, and they can use this as sort of way to measure distances for clusters of galaxies. Um, and what was found is that um, most galaxies would lie on this relationship between luminosity and rotation, um, but as they went to lower and lower luminosities, so fainter and fainter luminosities, um, galaxies would deviate away from this relationship. Um, and so in the early 2000s, uh, or in 2000, I believe, um, 
a group came out and suggested that um, if you look at the stars and the gas together, um, so not just the optical luminosity, but the amount of brightness uh, or mass in the stars and the gas together, we can reconcile these galaxies at the lower mass or lower luminosity end with the Tully-Fisher relation. And it's been coined the baryonic Tully-Fisher relation. So all baryons uh, in the galaxy are the stars and uh, the gas. Where baryons are basically just any matter that you're used to. If you knock on the table, that's baryons that you're... Yeah. There are most of the mass there. Exactly. All right. So the, the basic trend is that the the more mass that this galaxy has, the faster it rotates. That's exactly right. It's one of the fundamental laws of, uh, of physics. All right. And um, so, so where do the UDGs fit in this picture? So this is where I think a lot of interesting controversy has come up in the last uh, couple of years. Um, so a group has sort of looked at a subset of UDGs. And what they're finding is that these galaxies, these UDGs, are offset dramatically from the baryonic Tully-Fisher relation. And this relationship spans uh, many orders of magnitude. So from the uh, faintest, some of the faintest galaxies that we see, uh, the dwarf galaxies, all the way up to some of the most massive galaxies that we see. And they still somehow follow this, this fundamental relationship. Yeah, which is pretty amazing. So your UDGs are breaking it, you say. Yeah, so for something to be offset from it is is pretty interesting. So so just for for orientation, um, when these UDGs have a certain total baryonic mass, are they rotating too much or too little compared to the sort of standard relation? They're rotating too little, and this has very uh, very serious implications um, because it, it sort of implies that uh, they don't have, that they're purely dominated by their baryonic mass. So they have um, elevated baryonic masses for their velocity, or they have uh, decreased dark matter for their velocities, is how a lot of people have chose to spin it, is that their dark matter fraction is exceptionally low. Um, and so in some cases, in the most extreme case, I should say, um, these objects have negative dark matter, which, you know, fundamentally doesn't make sense. Um, so uh, th- there's a lot of uncertainties to these estimates, obviously, um, but, you know, these implications are what they are. Um, so, so a negative value makes you think it must be really close to zero. Uh, yeah. Not, not that it's actually... Negative, because uh, what would that matter. mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, but having having almost no dark matter is uh, almost heresy in Lambda CDM, from what I understand. Yes, it is. <laughs> but what I do think is that these that there's a lot of caveats that I've mentioned, and we need to flesh out whether those are uh, valid or not. You know, is the method that they used appropriate? Um, in this sort of regime? If so, uh, then we should be able to get a really broad sort of statistical sample because it's something that can be applied with future 
surveys like the square kilometer array. Um, if not, then we're going to need much better resolved observations that can sort of tease out this uh, simultaneous interplay between rotation and inclination um, at this very faint sort of regime. So it seems like these are some uh, interesting little suggestions, but uh, as you're saying, we're, we're going to need to look further in order to really nail down what's going on here, whether it's yeah. real or just the techniques that we're trying, yeah. uh, giving us funky results. So I think if we're going to start moving into what sort of future measurements we need, we'll go to our second break now and we'll come back and talk about the future. So uh, we'll, we'll be back in a minute. Hi, it's Nick again. While we're really proud of our content at the Queen's Observatory, we would be remiss if we didn't mention some of the other great resources out there. If you just can't get enough signs, you should check out the McDonald Institute on Facebook and Twitter. They're dedicated to advancing astroparticle physics in Canada and have been a big supporter of the observatory. You can also look for your local branch of the Royal Astronomical Society they can teach you how to get into astronomy from your own backyard. Finally, the Astronomy on Tap program is an excellent way to learn about astronomy in a more casual environment. Links to all these online programs that I mentioned will be provided in the podcast description. And with that, let's get back to this fascinating discussion about the universe. And welcome back. So uh, we, we have dove into the weeds of these UDGs and sort of seen that they, they have a lot to tell us about how galaxies form in our, in our universe. And I, I think we were starting to talk about what sorts of observations we're going to need in the future. So maybe, maybe we, should, uh, we, we should discuss what's next for smudges. Where, where is the survey going in order to answer some of these big questions? Yeah, so this is a really great question. Um, and uh, as I, I think alluded to earlier, we just had our mini collaboration meeting and uh, there's some great stuff that was presented and we're seeing smudges everywhere. Um, I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but it's several thousands um, of these UDG candidates that we're seeing um, across a large area of the sky. So we're, uh, we're using the uh, DECLS or DE cam, dark energy camera legacy survey data. Um, and this spans about 14,000 square degrees or about 13,000 square degrees on the sky. Um, so this is a large, large patch of the sky that has been imaged and the uh, imaging is publicly available. Um, so if you have any interests, uh, go to legacysurvey.com forward slash viewer, and you can just sort of look around on the sky. I'll make sure to include a link in the podcast description so people can click on that and then they can go see a detailed map of a large segment of the sky for themselves. It's really sweet. Um, so with that, we have a whole slew of candidates uh, that we can sort of start to probe. Um, from my end, uh, I am anticipated to complete my H1 follow-up survey with the Green Bank Telescope 
um, in about the middle of next year. And we're expecting to have anywhere from 250 to 300 or 400 uh, uh, UDGs or UDG candidates observed. Um, and we're hoping that within that sample, we'll confirm anywhere from 40 to 100 of these galaxies or these candidates as true UDGs. Um, and that's sort of the near horizon. Um, I do know that there are other groups that are using other methods, but I think what people are really interested in is, uh, or what I, I should say I'm really interested in, is sort of getting a chance to use these uh, square kilometer array precursors or pathfinder telescopes uh, to sort of tease out the this rotation inclination question uh, that's come about. Um, and so these telescopes, and specifically one that's in South Africa called Meerkat, is uh, a very sensitive, but also very, uh, very oh, versatile. That's a good word. Uh, it's very sensitive and very versatile. Um, so what we want to do with the Meerkat is target some of the galaxies that we followed up in H1 um, with the Green Bank Telescope uh, to sort of get better resolution and try to understand uh, the true rotation of these objects. Um, so we're, we're trying to see what we can do and the capabilities because it's still relatively a relatively new facility. Um, we're not sure how they're going to be allocating their time. Um, so we'll see what the upcoming proposals uh, are like, um, but that's some of the most interesting things in the mid to distant future in terms of observations for myself. Well, uh, I was going to ask what your ideal telescope is, but it kind of sounds like the SKA or the Meerkat are um, pretty great telescopes. You said they have a wide field of view and good resolution. So maybe instead, um, for our listeners, we'll have a little peek into the world of astronomers and you can sort of tell us what it's like proposing a project to a telescope. Um, so maybe like, what is, what is the process and how do they select who gets to use their telescope? Okay. This is, uh, this is something that I've really gotten a lot of experience with over the years. Um, so it's very much like you're trying to sell something to someone. You really need to pitch that your science is the science that this telescope should do. And there are a lot of different approaches that people have. Um, some people say that you really want to tell the best story. Um, other people say that you really want to show the most promising, you know, preliminary analysis. And what I've found is that it's, it, it, it's a mixture of both. You don't want to be too, you know, fluffy with your story, um, but you don't want to be too analytical with your preliminary work. And so what we do is, we have this science case that we really want to get more details on. So um, we'll figure out how we need to use the telescope. Uh, so in, in Green Bank's case, how, how much time or how much sensitivity do we need uh, to observe one of our objects? And then we'll build a science case uh, or build out our science case um, based on that. And we'll sort of pick out a sample and say, you know, we can do this much science if we use uh, this much time. 
and say it'll be able to probe this regime that hasn't been probed before. So you'll say things like that, um, and it's like unexplored. This is the no most novel thing. You know, you, you still throw in these sort of uh, catchphrases almost, um, but you need to back it up. And so that's what we always try to do, um, or that's what I've learned to always try to do is have this consistent, coherent story in a proposal, um, but also back it up with analysis. And it's very different for very different tel for all the different telescopes around the world. Um, there are scientific and uh, time allocation committees um, that can you know make or break your proposal. Um, so once you submit it to these observatories, they typically um, you know push it out to these other subcommittees that'll then uh, vote you know or rank things rank these proposals. And it's very difficult for, uh, say, a telescope like the Hubble Space Telescope, which everybody wants to use. Everybody's like, we want to get Hubble Space Telescope time. Um, but there are other facilities that are very undersubscribed, but are, you know, very useful. Um, and in those cases, you might get much more time than you've expected. Uh, so you really need to figure out what your science case is, what the telescope is that you need to use, figure out what the best story is, and always back it up with some form of analysis. It sounds like these telescope proposals are sort of an art in themselves. And, exactly. And, and it's very competitive. So have you, have you ever been denied your telescope time that you asked for um, when, when you put in one of these proposals? So I myself, as a principal investigator, uh, have not, um, but I've also mostly just proposed with the Green Bank Telescope. So they know who I am, they know the science that I want to do, and they know that I typically fulfill uh, the claims that I make in my proposals. So uh, if, if I was to sell you a car and I told you, hey, this car is not going to break down on you, chances are the car's not going to break down on you. Uh, like that's the, the equivalent here. I have been a co-investigator on many proposals. So things like the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, we've put in a few proposals with some of our collaborators. Uh, we've been denied there. I think one of the most intriguing ones is a proposal that we put in with an interferometer in the States um, called the Very Large Array. That was a joint proposal with the Hubble Space Telescope, and it was to look at the uh, look at these UDGs that are formed through these sort of uh, tidal interactions. So this gravitational harassment that happens, um, and we were awarded that time, and that was really exciting because it was very highly ranked, um, and we've got some collaborators working on that right now. So uh, it's it's really interesting to sort of see the difference between um, proposals that do get time and ones that don't get time. All right. So it's, it seems like uh, quite the adventure of putting these together. Once, once you do get, you said, uh, once, once you do get the time, um, how, how does actually doing the observations work? Do you, do you go down to the telescope and click the buttons or how, how do you, how do you make the, the telescope work to do what you want? So certain telescopes, uh, there are different sort of systems that they use for their scheduling. And 
the one that the Green Bank Telescope uses is a sort of dynamical scheduling system. And it's depending on the weather um, and depending on where your targets are, um, certain objects or certain types of observing are better suited uh, for a, a given time slot. Um, so for me, it's very much a, I'll find out 24 to 48 hours in advance if I'm gonna be observing, um, which I'm much more used to now than I was when I first started because I would frantically try to figure out, oh my gosh, I have to do all this. <laughs> um, but now I am much more of a seasoned veteran that has all of my scripts for observing made. I know what needs to happen. I know what to look for. It's all okay. Um, and thankfully we're in this world where uh, I can do everything from my laptop. I don't have to go down to the telescope, although I can. Um, I mean, outside of uh, the pandemic, I can. Um, but there are certain facilities that use a different approach where you have to tell them what, uh, what sort of uh, conditions you need in order to fulfill your observations. So a lot of optical telescopes use uh, this sort of queuing system where there's a certain chance that your observations will be done on a given night, depending on the conditions that you gave them. Um, and then something like the Hubble Space Telescope uh, follows a sort of similar routine where you need to tell them the very specific uh, requirements of your observations that will then, um, they'll try to work through their system and slot you into the most appropriate time. So in, in those cases, you don't have to do anything. You just tell them what you need and they work it out. And correct? Yeah. The issue is if you tell them the wrong thing and you miss out, then you're sunk. Your, your time's done. Oh my, that's, that's stressful. <laughs> yeah. So the onus is very much on you early on um, in those sort of situations. So when you're, when you're running the Green Bank Telescope from your laptop, um, you said that you get a, a day or two's notice that um, your time is up. So ha has it ever come at a really inconvenient time for you? Yes, it's come at uh, several inconvenient times. Um, it, can, it really just depends on where the object is in the sky. Um, so thankfully, radio astronomers can observe during the day, which is great. Uh, you don't want to get too close to the sun because that's a very bright radio source and it can mess with a lot of uh, instrumentation. Um, but typically, uh, it, it just depends on where your object is in the sky. Um, and I've had to observe uh, at all times throughout the day, but I think the most daunting and I think in some ways traumatic experience was in the second year of my master's where I had two consecutive shifts that were 13 and then 12 hours. Uh, so I had a 13 hour shift where I had to observe and then a short break and then a 12 hour sh shift. Um, oh my goodness. So <laughs> it's, it's mostly just sitting at a computer and monitoring. So it's not very intensive work. It's just being aware for that amount of time is, is, is a little, yeah, well, it's a little much. And, and I'm sure it's stressful if, you know that something could go wrong at any point. It's like, it's gonna be boring right up until the moment when it's very much not boring. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's happened. <laughs> All right. Um, so I, I think that gives people a sense of what it's like 
being an observational astronomer. Um, and as I mentioned at the beginning, you're sort of heading towards the end of your PhD. You've got, I, I think, less than a year left, yep. <laughs> which is, I'm sure, terrifying. So I'm going to ask you another terrifying question of uh, what, are your, what are your plans next? What, what do you want to do once you get your PhD? So my ultimate goal is, you know, to continue uh, this avenue of, you know, studying astronomy, understanding, you know, how galaxies form and evolve. And so the next sort of step in that is to apply for postdoctoral fellowships, uh, which I'm, I've been in the process of doing for a few months now. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's a waiting game, unfortunately. Uh, so I've applied to over a dozen uh, different positions now. And it, it does get easier, but it doesn't necessarily get less stressful, especially because not all of them uh, have a sort of consistent schedule uh, in terms of telling you uh, whether you were are, are given a position or uh, are rejected from a position. And some of these get uh, upwards of hundreds of applications. So these are internationally competitive positions and uh you know it, it is the life that it is <laughs> all right very cool so uh i assume that uh if if you get one of these positions you'll be very excited about it absolutely and yes I'm, I'm quite sure you will considering this pretty amazing research that you you've been telling us Thanks, I, I think <laughs> i think that covers all the questions i had so Thanks, Anantham, for telling us about your really cool UDGs, or should I say uh, smudges? <laughs> yeah, thanks so much, Connor, for having me on here. This has been really great. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. All right, we will we'll be back with another episode shortly. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Queen's Observatory's Fast Radio Burst. We hope you enjoyed this walk through the universe. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to contact us via email at queensuobservatory at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter as the Queen's University Observatory to stay up to date. If you like this podcast, you can help us by leaving a review and sharing it with your friends. This will help us become more visible and spread the wonders of the universe to more people. That is all from us. We'll be back again with another exciting topic in astronomy.